This episode is brought to you by I Know This Much Is True on HBO. Based on the best-selling novel by Wally Lamb, this limited series follows Dominic Birdsey as he struggles to care for his twin brother Thomas while discovering the truth about his own family history. Considered a stunning work of art by Decider, I Know This Much Is True is Emmy-eligible for Outstanding Limited Series and all other categories. The following interview was recorded on May 12th. For years, Hollywood couldn't figure out how to crack Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' highly esteemed graphic novel Watchmen about dormant and hidden superheroes coming out of retirement in a 1985 world, one that was stained by the sins of the Vietnam War and the Nixon era. 23 years after Watchmen's publication, filmmaker Zack Snyder finally found a way to bring the Marvel property to life on the big screen. But of course, it divided fans. Last fall, Damon Lindelof, who knows a lot about serialized drama, having co-created the legendary ABC series Lost, took a crack at Watchmen for HBO. And it wasn't a remake, rather a brilliant revisionist continuation of the comic we all grew up adoring. Damon Lindelof is here with us today on Crew Call. Damon Lindelof, welcome to Deadline's Crew Call. It is great to be here on Zoom. The, um, so my first question to you about, about adapting, about taking Watchmen uh, in a limited series to HBO is, you know, for years, this piece of IP was uh, kicked around Hollywood. It was, you know, uh, there were a number of directors that wanted to make it and Terry Gilliam and studios were off and they didn't, they couldn't figure it out. And then all of a sudden Zach, you know, Warner Brothers and Zack Snyder had, you know, the, the courage to do so that I was happy with that adaptation, you know, it's cause it's a big, big novel. Some fans, whatever you could say, some fans were split, but um, to take it on again, with the audacity of expanding it, extending the universe. Tell me about that, um, because what you've done here is just so brilliant, and I think you made a lot of us very, very happy. Well, first of all, thank you for, for saying all that, and it's really appreciated, and it's it's very surreal to hear you say it, because you know for, for so long, both before and during the process, we are constantly questioning whether or not we should be doing it. And then on the heels of that, whether or not it was working. And so um, it's an immense relief to hear that at least for some people it did. But I also think that it's important to say that because we were constantly asking ourselves, is this our story to tell on a number of different levels, first and foremost, because we are adapting a masterpiece, is this our story to tell? Um, the audacity that you speak of on the other side of that seesaw was a tremendous amount of fear and responsibility. And so I think that um, a lot of the times in hindsight, uh, something looks like it was brave or audacious. But in fact, what was really driving us was this compulsion 
to tell the story because we loved it so deeply. Um, and the idea that Watchmen is something that was such a formative um, story and a and piece of storytelling in my life, I think that I felt a sense of debt to it in a lot of ways because it was so reflective in a lot of my work. And so the first time that um, Warner Brothers and HBO came to me and said, do you want to do this as a as a, adapted into a television show, I said no. And uh, we should, you should just leave it alone. And then they circled back a couple of years later and asked again. And I said, didn't you hear me the first time? You, no, if there's anything, just leave Watchmen alone. The third time they asked me the seeds of, of, of the story that I wanted to tell had started to take root and the, and the first pieces of, of green were poking through the soil. And so I felt like, you know, I'm not sure that I should do this, but I think I'm stupid enough to try. <laughs> and, uh, and the rest is, is history, whether we like it or not. When did it, when did it, you have the spark to say, you know, if we do do this, it's got to be a continuation or it needs to be, we need to have a similar Watchmen type of universe in our current society, maybe in our near future, but with a nod toward what has been established in the canon. Was that always your gist or did you, how did, how did you, how did you come to that? It's a great question. And I think that you always start from a place of, particularly if you're a fan as, as I am and, and you clearly are. Um, and most, most people who um, are going to watch Watchmen um, are either fans of the pre-existing material or hoping to become fans of the new one. Um, you, you ask yourself, what would I want to see? What are the things that are really important to me? And the first thing on the list was that it, it strictly adheres to the canon. There's of what was written before it. And I think that there's an idea of reinvention or rebooting um, that can work in certain instances. But when it came to Watchmen, I think the idea of saying that this was never going to work if if it didn't treat the, those 12 issues or what many refer to as the graphic novel, because you, they were collected later, but like that we, that we could re we could re um, discover certain plot threads that hadn't been developed, but we couldn't change anything. Um, and then the idea of engaging in this level of retroactive continuity, because the central idea of our Watchmen is what if hooded justice, the very first vigilante, was was an African-American man who was a victim of, of racial violence himself when he was a child. Um, he actually inspired costume adventuring. That's a huge piece of retcon that we knew was not the intention of the original uh, writer and in the highest esteem in which we hold Alan Moore. And Dave Gibbons, who was a, cons a consulting producer on the show, is like, what's Dave going to think of this idea? Um, and he loved it. And so I sort of felt like, okay, maybe this is something that we should try. It's, it's people say they want something original, but they also wanted to adhere to the thing that they loved. When you go to a Rolling Stone show, you want them to play satisfaction and sympathy for the devil. But if they just only play the old, old songs over and over again, then you're not moving, uh, you're not moving creativity forwards at all with new ideas. And so the paradox of balancing the old and the new was a conversation we were con consistently having but you have to start with rules and then you decide which ones you're going to try to bend 
but it was really important to us that they that we never broke and the and the relationship with the canon was really the key to all that so just like watchmen was a commentary in the late 80s on what we were going through with reagan and of course nodding to things emanating out of like the late 60s um you have what you've done here is you have Watchmen was urban. You've made it rural. Mm. And you've gone and you've taken the, the socioeconomic politics of what we've been experiencing, um, you know, during this divided nation over the last four years with an echo of Ferguson. And you have, you've just, you've done Watchmen rural. What does it look like outside of the city? What a brilliant idea. How did that, again, Tell us more about how all of this came to you. I think a lot of these ideas are um, start with questions. You know, I like to, I'm a big fan of what ifs. And, and I also am a big believer in this concept of story gravity that, um, that you can actually feel the pull of, of a story on you. And sometimes you should resist that. And that's where innovation can occur. But sometimes you have to, uh, relent to it because it's a it's a law of physics and you can't break that law. And one of the things that we were interrogating um, is that why is it that all superhero stories take place in like New York or, or or a version of New York? You know, whether it's Gotham City or Metropolis. You know, I was always confused when Superman would would fly by the Statue of Liberty in Metropolis because I'd be like, wow, isn't that New York? Um, and so and. So even in the Avengers movies, we see that um, we see that New York uh, looms very, very large um, because urban environments uh, have lots of people in them. They're exciting places to set stories. There's a lot of potential casualties if, if bad guys are there. But we just started asking the question, you know, what's happening outside of New York? And is there is there a place is is there a place to, to tell the story that um, that gets the same themes across? but perhaps is going to feel a lot more fresh if it's set in a different place. And then, um, and then essentially all of this storytelling, this entire season of Watchmen was really born out of a single paragraph in, a, um, in an essay that ta Coates wrote for the Atlantic called the case for reparations. And in that, um, in that article, and I highly encourage anybody who's listening to this to, to read it because it's in one of the most important pieces uh, of writing um, in the last couple decades, but he mentioned the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. And I did not know what that, that was. I'd never heard of it. And, um, and I went to Wikipedia and read about it. And I was so floored by what had happened in, in, um, in Tulsa, but even more floored by the fact that it had been hidden, camouflaged. And so right then, my obsession with the Tulsa massacre of 1921 that ran into this, the, the freight train that was HBO and Warner brothers saying, are you sure you don't want to do Watchmen? And suddenly those two things collided. And the, the and so the idea that to set the story in Oklahoma was born out of my, my, my compulsion to, you know, to to talk about the 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 massacre of twenty one as an origin story, because in addition to not knowing about it, it felt 
like a superhero origin story to me because superhero origin story is about the destruction of a world, whether that world is Krypton or it's the death of Bruce Wayne's parents or uncle Ben and Spider-Man uh, or the loss of, um, of black Panther's father in Wakanda, you know, Tulsa 21 to me felt like it was mythic, even though it was real history and only in Watchmen can you actually combine real world events with the, with fictional genre piece that's something that kind of Marvel and DC can't do um, uh, actually take on real history. And so that was the, that was the hubris, you, you know, you called it before uh, audacity, but I would say it was sort of like, let's, let's, let's do that. And so the setting the story in Tulsa was essential. And then, then we started to interrogate, can you do masked adventures in, in Tulsa, um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, you know, well, let's give it a shot. Brilliant. Um, so these new characters, Sister Night, Looking Glass, Red Scare, have they been with you for a while? Had you, had, 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 had you or any of your writers kind of been designing your own Watchmen characters going back to high school? <laughs> it's such a great question. I mean, I think that one of the fun parts of putting that writer's room together in the beginning was... You know, we knew that Angela Abar was going to be the central character of the season because she was the granddaughter of of the of the season's ser- the entire series central character, um, Hooded Justice Will Reeves. But everybody else was sort of like there to be designed, and so everybody got to pitch, you know, their own superheroes. I think that you know, I and and the only sort of um um invitation to picture superhero was that their origin story had to be traumatic and that their costume had to be a reflection of their trauma. And so all of those characters, some were developed more specifically than others. We got to tell, for example, Looking Glass's story, uh, obviously um, Sister Night, but uh, characters like Red Scare and even Pirate Jenny to some degree, they had like, and Panda, they had fully baked backstories based on those conversations, um, some of which we were able to tell and others of which we weren't. But, I, but that was, I think the answer to your question is yes. I mean, every kid, um, no matter where they're from, whether they're a boy or a girl, it, at some point imagines what their superhero persona would be and what their powers would be and what their costume would look like. And this became an opportunity to, to play. Uh, and then how how did you decide who to take forward from, like, you, you've done this great uh, psychological expansion and justice to Lori, to Lori Blake. Uh, you, you've um, obviously, Dr. Manhattan is infinite. He's got to be in it. Hmm. Um, but what, and Ozymandias makes sense. How did you decide, like, comedian, of course, we love him. Um how, what was the decision on who to take forward from uh, from the original from the original um, Alan Moore and, and Gibbon and Dave Gibbons? Uh, it was a lot of it was a lot of trial and error. I mean, I think that there was a lot of conversation in the early going about whether or not this felt like it was a sequel, or whether it was original. Or and and at the end of the day, I, I was like, we'll leave it to everyone else to decide what to call this thing. But I think what's as a storyteller, what I'd like to do is build the pilot, the, or, or at least the first couple episodes, in a way that reflect 
you know, there, there are some oblique references back to the source material, but it's an, it's an entry point for new viewers. And also, if you love the original Watchmen, you might watch the pilot and go, what does this even have to do with Watchmen? Other than the fact that some people are wearing masks or they're flying, they're clearly flying um, an, uh, a police car that looks a lot like Archimedes, um, the, the owl ship from the original. So there are these little flavors of it, but it's not completely dominating. By the time you get to the third episode, which is Laurie Blake's point of view, that's when the show begins to re- reveal itself as what we called kind of like a backdoor sequel. But our hope was by then, you know, everybody who was invested in the show started caring about the new characters and the new stories and might take it upon themselves to go back and read the original Watchmen or watch Zach's movie or, or, you know, there's this great resource I hear called the internet that you can go on uh, to, to answer your questions, go find your Reddit thread that will tell you who Adrian Veidt is. And so, but the answer to your question is we were constantly trying to find the balance between the old and the new. We knew that there was no, no way to call to earn the name Watchmen if some of those original characters weren't going to be in it. But the decision was basically made to put all of the old characters um, in service of the new character's story. So Dr. Manhattan and Adrian Veidt um, and Laurie Blake are in the show, but they're actually in service of Angela and Will's story. And um, I think that that's the way that we were able to hopefully achieve some level of originality um, in what is essentially a sequel. Mark Ruffalo's acting continually floors me. Ever since I saw him 20 years ago in You Can Count On Me, everything he's in, whether it's Foxcatcher, Spotlight, or the HBO Emmy-winning movie, The Normal Heart. This guy always has so many dramatic sides. So David, get this. He's starring in the new HBO limited series, I Know This Much Is True. It's based on the Wally Lamb New York Times bestseller. And Ruffalo plays twins, Dominic and Thomas Birdsey. Dominic is struggling to take care of Thomas as he discovers the truth about his own family history. I know this much is true. Is Emmy eligible for all related categories? The um, so Alan Moore's Miracle Man, uh, which was a deconstruction of Shazam, was <laughs> that on the mind of your writers' room when you were breaking story here on Watchmen, uh, specifically because that has. Um, there's there's a there's kind of like Doctor Manhattan awakens. Spoiler alert! You're about to you're about to ruin the big twist of Miracle Man. So we should just warn people that you're that big spoiler <laughs> alert is about to come if you've never if you've never read Miracle Man. But go on. Yeah. Well, the answer to your question I, is yes. I'll, okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's what I was. That's what I was going to ask you. Like how how that impacted the writers' room that particular Alan Moore. You know, a- Alan Moore is a genius um, and has inspired. Uh, a lot of my writing. And in, in addition to Watchmen, Miracle Man, and then he did um, an image comic called Supreme. He did a run on that character and and interrogated the same basic idea, which was the idea of retcon as part of the story, retroactive continuity, which is what's the origin story that the character thought that they had versus p- perhaps that that was manipulated. Um, so in Miracle Man, the, the, the origin story that we're being given for the 
the, the, the main character is not entirely the truth. It's a lie that's been fed to him. And the story is about him finding out what his true origin story really is. Uh, Supreme interrogates the same idea through the Superman lens in a much sort of fun and, um, and, and silly way, uh, but is none, nonetheless still affecting. And so, yes, uh, there were two writers in that room, myself and Jeff Jensen, who were intimately familiar with both Miracle Man and Supreme. And that it, it absolutely was a tip of the cap um, and nothing we would try to hide in terms of the ongoing influence of, of, of Alan Moore, who I have to say for the purposes of, of this interview uh, was very clear and not wanting to be associated with, with this iteration of Watchmen in any way. And we want to re- respect that. Um, but at the same time, as I've said, you know, when I was first asked about it at the beginning of rolling the show out is Alan Moore made his um, career on basically defying the generation before him. He was as punk, you know, punk rock uh, as comic books came. And so he didn't ask for permission to, uh, to reimagine Swamp Thing. He didn't ask for permission to, um, to change the game as it related to the greatest Superman story ever told or um or what he did in green lantern or certainly what he did with the charlton characters in watchmen and so while i have to reconcile with the fact that our season of watchmen exists in open defiance of alan moore's wishes i also believe that we did it in the spirit of alan moore has have you heard from him in the wake of it i nothing i have not um I, did, I, I, Gibbons is a very well. He Gibbons was with you all along on this on this ride. So yeah, that's right. Dave is, yeah. is wonderful, and he wasn't just there to rubber stamp things. He was really there to to provide insight. the The only barometer for does this feel Watchmen enough, using Watchmen as an adjective, the only barometer that we had was Dave Gibbons, and so uh, it was essential that he was there every step of the way. This is my bad because I know Watchmen is a very, very big universe. The whole notion of memory pills, was that originally in the graphic novel? I, I forget. There are certain, you know, because there are things, it's such a massive, when you put the, when you put the 12 issues together, it's so massive. And, and, and then there's the side articles, the, the, the sidebar articles that are in it. And then the, the whole um, uh, Black Freighter issue um, but the idea of memory pills was you, or was your I team? Think that, yeah, I don't think that the idea of nostalgia or pharmaceuticals that could, that could store and or transfer memories existed in the original Watchmen. And um, it's certainly that idea is not original to our season. There's other science fiction uh, stories, movies, TV shows, comic books that have sort of, you know, from, you know, from inception where you can go into someone else's uh, unconscious via a device or total recall. Um, you know, we certainly aren't the first ones to come up with that methodology of storytelling. In fact, Quantum Leap was a big inspiration for how we would show Angela was actually inhabiting her grandfather's um, uh, memories, but she didn't have the ability to change anything. So there were a lot of influences, but you know, we brought, the nostalgia idea did not come from the initial Watchmen, aside from the fact that Adrian Veidt developed a perfume line called that he called Nostalgia um, and is replaced by Millennium 
in the in the ending of Watchmen. But we sort of felt like now that Lady True is mass marketing a pharmaceutical, it would, it would be really interesting for her to call it nostalgia, building upon the original Vite brand. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so all of this leads us to episode six, This Extraordinary Being, when Angela takes her, her grandfather's um, uh, memory, uh, nostalgia pills. Brilliant episode. Here's, uh, you know, I was, in, in re-watching it, the fight scenes and the choreography, when Hooded Justice first breaks into the Klansman hideout and the way the camera is swirling, and then later on when he, he, he uh, encounters them again and fights them again and, you know, where they have all the, the film projectors going on. There's something about one of the things, of course, we love from Watchmen is how the fight scenes are paneled. And there's something very Watchmen a bit about the way that you shot that. And I'm wondering if you could expound on drawing inspiration from the graphic novel and, and the fight scenes, you know, that were paneled. Because the way you move the camera and the way it swirls around and the way, you know, they kick they kick in the face and everything. All of it is just, um, again, so faithful. Well, uh, thanks for saying that. And this is an instance where I can, where, where I can take almost no credit for, for this particular arena of, of, of the show, other than being smart enough to um, collaborate and, and with and hire um, the right people. Core Jefferson and I um, uh, wrote this script and Nicole Cassell directed the Watchmen pilot, and we 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 developed an entire spirit of um, adherence to what we called the Old Testament. So the twelve issues that graphic novel basically was all over the production office. Everybody had it in their office, so we called it the Old Testament. It was almost like a Bible. It was always on the set. Everybody had access to it. So in the case of, of episode six, Stephen Williams, who was also an executive producer on the show and, and, and an acolyte of the original graphic novel, and Justin Reimer, who is our stunt coordinator, everybody shows up to these meetings holding their tomes in their hands. And so every conversation is basically, you know, we considered ourselves as, as architecting sort of a New Testament but like the biblical New Testament, it doesn't ignore the Old Testament. It's built upon the foundation of it. And so the fact that we are constantly solving for what the language of Watchmen is and wanting to adhere to it without it feeling like it was a comic book. And I'm putting, I'm making air quotes around that because I think that the, when we say it's comic book storytelling, it feels less grounded in a way. And there was something always about the way that the violence was presented, as you referred to it in the original comic, that was more visceral. Um, and, uh, and verite, but also it has like a sense of being a little bit choreographed, um, and, and, and balletic. And so in the case of that episode, I think the added challenge for the stunt team is that these shots, all these sequences are being designed as oneers. Um, and so you have to have uh, a lot of rehearsals for safety reasons, but also Greg Middleton, who is our incredible director of photography, the, the camera, um, the camera operator um, in, in that case, uh, Chris Cuevas, he's part of the dance of the choreography. He, he has to not only know what to film, but he has to not get punched in the face. And so I think that I, I had the, the joy of actually being down in Atlanta for a couple of days of, uh, for the principal photography of that episode and just watching, you know, 
you would, that they would basically spend five or six hours rehearsing um, those sequences. And then they would, and then we would shoot it um, five or six times. And uh, it, you know, you can't argue with the results. It's pretty spectacular. This is very interesting. And, and by the way, um, uh, my, uh, my friend, my fellow uh, comic book fanboy friend from high school, Evan O'Sullivan, um, was a uh, big part in, in, um, in, in, in prep here, reminding me things. So, oh, cool. Was, so he, 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 he has a, a couple questions in here. What's interesting is um, these, these stories in the comic books. We're, we're living in, you know, the zenith, the, the, the huge, um, the huge uh, zenith now of serialized entertainment. And a lot of the stories that we're seeing on screen uh, were hatched during the 80s, very interestingly enough. What do you, what's your take on that? The fact that these, these themes, these stories that were, you know, very much red meat during the 80s when we were reading them in comic books are now coming to life in massive entertainment. What, what's your, is there something about we, we haven't changed as far as, you know, a society and some of, some of the, um, it's, a, it's a broad question. Just a lot of the issues and themes that were, you know, Alan Moore was, was taking on back then. It's, it's interesting that you ask that question because I think about it and, and, and I'm sure that some um, sociologist or a cultural anthropologist has a much better research answer to it other than for me to say that I feel like every generation, basically a generation is 25 to 35 years. There is a period of nostalgia that occurs where you reflect back on exactly 30 to 35 years earlier. So when I was growing up in the mid eighties, that was happening with the 1950s. So this idea of sort of like back to the future, you know, happy days where we were reflecting back on this, you know, essentially when our parents were our age and sort of this idea of like, how far have we come from the 1950s? Like why are, you know, like what, what's happening in the 1980s? And, and, and the, and the basic calculus there was like that the fifties were sort of a simpler time um, and, um, and a happier time and a more prosperous time. But when you started really looking at them, you started to realize like, okay, women don't really have rights. Uh, um, African-Americans don't have rights and they're being, you know, they, 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 they can't even vote and they're, you know, they're, they're being relevant. So it's like the fifties were ideal for if, if you were a white man in America, but, but it didn't really work out that well for everyone. And so eight, the eighties are starting to kind of evaluate what it looks like for something to be more realistic, a little bit more gritty. Now here we are in 2020 and this, this reckoning started happening probably in the, in, in, in the, um, in the aughts, um, where essentially we're looking back at the eighties and we're trying to make sense of them, you know, cause again, the 1980s were this period of great prosperity in our country, the Reagan years. Um, and in the same way that the, you know, that we were in a pre COVID era, sort of, um, whatever your political feelings about, um, the president of the United States and the current administration, I've made no bones about the fact that I'm not a huge fan, but I think that the idea that these are prosperous times in America is worth interrogating. 
Um, are, they, is, are they prosperous for everyone? Uh, most certainly not. There's greater uh, inequity in our society, um, culturally, economically, racially. Um, uh, there's a gender gap. All of those things still exist. And so the way that we talk about the present is we reflect on the past. Um, and uh, I think that's probably the best answer I can, can come up with to your question of like, why the 80s? They were more interesting than the 90s. <laughs> Better music. So, um, two more questions. Um, so uh, in the current COVID environment, um, how has, the, how has the, the theme of, the, of Watchmen in the series changed for you? I mean, Adrian Vett, what would he make of a pandemic? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, well, I think the answer is, I think the answer is Adrian uh, would make a pandemic. He would exactly he make to save us. of it. And I, <laughs> I, I, so I think what, what's really interesting is that idea of, of trust, of, of fake news, of uh, media manipulation, of what's the real story, conspiracy theory all of those things that are sort of swirling around Watchmen in their tech and it's in its primary text. And we certainly um, revisited those ideas and tried to expand upon them. But like now in the, in the face of, um, of a global pandemic, the idea that there is a, a split, a divide between what we believe, you know, as to how serious it is. Um, is it, is it, you know, sh- are, are we taking the appropriate steps? Should we all be, be sheltering in place or are we destroying our economy and should we just basically go out and um and expose ourselves to this virus because it's not as bad as they say it is well who's they and so i think that this issue of whether we should trust our institutions is really coming home to roost in a really profound way right now and unfortunately it's happening across ide- ideological lines so the way that you treat how you're going to live in a world that is ravaged by a pandemic is based on your political ideology versus what your instincts tell you to do or not do. That is, that is quite frightening. And I think that uh, Adrian Veidt would be doing everything he could to, uh, to fix it. He'd be very well-intentioned and it would probably result in the death of millions. As, and as, then uh, in, in closing today, and I think you can ask this last question that I'm going to ask you. I think you know what this is going to be. So again, once again, this is a perfect writer's paradise right now, us, us being sheltered at home. Have you given any thought? Like, I, 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 know, I know it's kind of like you'd like to do a second season as it warrants it, maybe any definite thought that you are cracking a second season as we speak, or are you still, you're still thinking about it? I mean, I, I feel like I've been fairly consistent in, in my thinking about it since we finished making the first season of the show, which is, this is my, this is, this is my take on Watchmen. And obviously it was done in collaboration with a number of other, uh, other partners. Um, but it's, but I sort of like, I said everything that I have to say about this. This is my love letter to the original and every great idea that we had went on the screen. And so I feel like the idea of continuing it for me personally doesn't make a, a lot of sense. Um, but I embrace and accept and look forward to what other people might do with Watchmen. And I wish that we, in, a, in the television culture, 
I wish that we embrace the same thing that they do in movies, which is basically, you know, um, uh, Christopher Nolan did his run on Batman and now he's finished with Batman. And now Matt Reeves is going to come in and do that. And, um, and, and, and so the idea that these myths don't belong to any one individual, um, that's the, you know, that's the great culture of comic books, as you well know, which is Swamp Thing existed before Alan Moore came in and, Alan Moore did a, did a great, arguably the definitive run on Swamp Thing, but other writers like Brian K. Vaughn and Jeff Lemire came in after Alan Moore did, and they did great Swamp, Swamp Thing stories too. So I look forward to more Watchmen stories, whether they're in, what, in whatever medium they appear, but I just don't think I should be the one telling them. Um, and so hopefully we've opened up the tent that is Watchmen and said there's other kinds of stories that you can tell in here. Um, but hopefully they love the original as much as, as I did, but there, there are any number of storytellers that I would love to see take a spin at what you're calling a second season of Watchmen, but I would just say another season of it. You know, I mean, when Noah Hawley is done with Fargo, I would love for other writers to take a crack at Fargo because the Coen brothers created Fargo, but Noah Hawley came in and was able to put a spin on it that felt like it was, a love letter to the original, but it was new and unique for someone to now come along and do it the way that Noah did it would not be as interesting as putting their own stamp on it. That's, you know, you, you should, you should try to bring something new to the table. And the, the only thing you can bring that's new is you. Um, can you share with us what you're working on now? It is too premature to, to, um, to formalize that, but I'm thinking about a couple of different TV ideas where I would be taking more of a backseat um, and letting someone else captain the ship. Um, uh, that's, that's been a lot of fun. And, um, and, and so I, I think like letting other people tell their stories, using my experience um, or lack thereof, to, to help steer them away from the rocks as it were. But um, I think there are a couple of ideas that are, that are quite interesting right now. And hopefully when we all emerge safely from uh, this scenario and, and get the, um, the industry back up and running again, I'll be ready to talk about that with more specificity. Damon Lindelof, creator of HBO's Watchmen. Co-creator, obviously, many other creators that preceded me, yes. But thank you. You can watch it on HBO Max and on your local cable uh, affiliate streaming apps. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Stay safe and uh, stay safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.